and welcome to The Napoleonicist. I've got something very different but very exciting for you today because we are telling the story of the Russian and German campaigns of 1812 to 13, except that we're not telling the story of the Russian and German campaigns in 1812 and 1813. I will explain why I'm trolling you with that title in just a moment. I am joined by Jesse Alexander, a public historian who works with real-time history. He's been the host of Glory and Defeat, The Great War, Rhineland 45, and 16 Days in Berlin. So you're getting the sense of where we're going with this. Real-time history are producing a new documentary looking at the Russian and German campaigns. It's going to be a great project. We're going to start to unpick where this kind of momentum has come from. And we're going to drill down into a much better way of doing history, which is really kind of what I'm getting at with the, the crux of this interview. A, a new way of thinking about doing history documentaries that digs, and I will explore that in just a moment. But Jesse, welcome to the Napoleonicist. Great to have you on. How have the things been and how are you doing? Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. Things are, you know, they are as they are in a pandemic time, but uh, over at Real Time History, things are going well. We're wrapping up our Glory and Defeat uh, series on the Franco-Prussian War, and we're ramping up, starting with the pre-production for Napoleon's Downfall, where we're going to be potentially going all the way to Waterloo. Let's see how the first stages of the campaign go, so to speak. So yeah, things are good. Uh, lots of ideas percolating in the studio. So, uh, well, I guess we'll get into some of that uh, pretty soon. Exactly. It sounds like exciting times. Although I should just say, you know, you're talking about the pandemic. We have discovered the, the fatal failing of marketing for this podcast, which is because, you know, there's been a pandemic and I am yet to do a, a podcast episode for one thing, but any sort of significant speech in shoes as a historian, clearly I failed to realise that I could like produce Napoleonicist socks and I'd make a killing. How did, how did I fail to realize that? I, I do not know. Okay, let's, let's start digging into this, shall we? Let's start with the concept behind the series, because this is a very different way of doing documentaries, and I like this. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be very frank, you know, I very sarcastically refer to my scathing, my, my kind of begging letter that I do at the end of every episode, where I thank the patrons and go, look, guys, financial support, it matters. And that's, that's a really important thing to emphasize in relation to real-time history, because it's incredibly tough out there. So what's the rationale behind creating an entity like real-time history? Talk us through what you guys try to do, first of all, and then we'll sort of start to unpick what you're going to do with this particular kind of strand on Napoleonic history. Yeah, I mean, there's a few moving parts to the story, I guess, about how real-time history came to be and what the philosophy is. But it sort of started out originally, there was the Great War Channel, which started in 2014. This was done by a different media company, a German media company. And the concept was that they'd follow the war week by week. As some of your, view, your listeners are probably familiar with that. When that project came to a close, a couple of the members of the team who worked on the production team said, hey, you know, this is a great concept. We want to continue it. And we can even continue with the Great War Channel itself because there's a host of interesting things that happen after the armistice that are well worth covering. So they created a startup company to be able to produce more history content using that same kind of chronological approach in real time, so to speak. And they needed a new historian and hosts. And I was lucky enough to, I guess, fit the bill. Um, and I joined the team then in early 2019. And we then decided to expand that on that approach and offer it with a bit more depth. Because I think they had so much going on between 14 and 18. That, of course, it's a narrative type of history. It's linear if it's chronological and it's event-based, but we wanted to add a bit more depth to that. We wanted to add a bit more of the historiographical context maybe and, and uh, a bit more social history as well, a bit more 
of a glimpse into the primary sources, so accounts and of letters and diaries and memoirs and reports and that sort of thing, and, and actually take quotes from them uh, a bit more often than they were able to do with the hectic pace of the, the 14 to 18. And so that approach uh, we applied to our recent series on the Franco-Prussian War, to the continuation of the Great War, and to our two independent Second World War films that are not on YouTube, like our ongoing series. And we hope that that's going to be a recipe for success, that it's going to be broad enough that people will be interested and that people will be willing to support us. And so far, it's worked. I mean, it's incredibly ambitious, but also incredibly laudable, because I want to sort of just talk for a moment about the genre of the documentary. I consider myself very fortunate to have had one fleeting kind of feature on a, on a documentary, and I'm very grateful for that. But it is you are very conscious when you start to talk to the folks behind the production that they, with the best one in the world, they don't know the period. And that's fine because that's why they come to you as somebody and they sort of, they, they are as part of that process kind of mining your knowledge to work out what they want to do. But there's also this kind of tension that quite often they have pitched this sort of preconceived narrative. And sometimes those narratives work and that's great. On other occasions they don't. And so it's been very interesting to talk with colleagues who have worked on shows where people have gone in with this concept and actually the concept just doesn't work. And so you get this kind of desperate sort of retrofitting of narratives and last minute changes and it all becomes very chaotic. Why, well, perhaps the why comes later, but what do you think the average member of the public demands? And to what extent do you think that producers of shows are sort of hostage to what they think the public wants, when in reality, the public has a different perception of what they want history to be. Oh, yeah, that's a can of worms. I mean, the public, and in this case, we're talking about the internet history interested public, it's, it is fragmented in a way. And so part of the challenge is to be able to, you know, be responsible as a public historian. But to include enough of the elements that people might find when they're searching for things or already have some kind of familiarity with that will sort of be a bit of a gateway drug, so to speak, to open up what you want to do and expose people to that. Um, it's quite tricky because a lot of the popular conceptions are based on things that are slightly, you know, going in a different direction than a lot of the historical liter historical literature that you'd want to base your your work on. So the the key is navigating those two things at the same time. And I think we can use very very cautiously and in a limited sense some key concepts or phrases or figures that are actually from outdated narratives as long as we don't, you know, really full on go hook line and sinker for that to draw people in something they know, a name, a battle or whatever, and then take them on a ride, so to speak, right? And if we do that well, we can use the popular conceptions to our advantage rather than be a prisoner to them. Now, of course, this sounds great, you know, when I tell it that way, and then we might put out an episode on the Great War, for example, on a topic we think is super fascinating, but it doesn't have whatever key search word in the title and it doesn't do that well right um or it's about german southwest africa after 1918 and you know it's a bit of a flop or whatever so it's it's um, a very tricky balancing act but we we try to keep a foot in both camps uh same thing for the influence of online games a huge proportion of the internet history interested public are people who play strategy games or real-time strategy games or what have you. And they you can even tell in the language and stuff, oh, my favorite civilization is Prussia, or oh my, I, I can't believe they sieged that down, or these kinds of things from the from the gaming world. And and they also expect visuals that are a bit similar to the gaming world. Well, guess what? You know, 19th century paintings don't look like the interface for a computer game. And so or sketches or whatever that, a, that an officer made in the, in the 1870s or what have you. So 
it's um, it's trying to then hit that a little bit with our commissioned illustrations without going fully cartoon and yeah so you you can see that uh, we we put a lot of thought into it it's not always easy we don't always get it exactly right but we hope that in the grand scheme of things for the fragment of that public that we hope is large enough that wants to go that extra mile that wants a bit more depth that wants to take 30 seconds and listen to what someone wrote in 1812 when they're short of food and freezing or whatever uh that's we we think that there are enough people out there who are who are going to be into that i think it's a fascinating business model and hats off to you because you know podcasting ain't easy to then <laughs> produce a documentary is even harder and you're having to it sounds like you're striking a very delicate balance you know you are deliberately going for somebody who has a degree of an acquired taste in the sense that they don't just want the basics they want proper knowledge yes they've been hooked and now they and they've seen some stuff on tv and they're kind of looking at it and going mm, yeah but can i have a bit more and it feels to me that that's where real-time history comes in but with that goes a huge operation in terms of the scale of what you're trying to achieve so how do you convince people to go beyond that you know just take a flavor in that that one hour documentary and instead commit to a project like this well i mean i think one thing that's important is that i mean maybe these things sound contradictory but i think that's it's part of the model that somehow works is we keep um a meta storyline going with the narrative and the chronology and at the same time we break it break it up right so we have these weekly episodes now, for some projects, a weekly episode will cover one week of historical time. But for other projects, including the Napoleonic series that are coming up, we're going to stretch that around a little bit because sometimes there are gaps, especially the farther back you go in history, the slower the pace <clears throat> of historical reality in a sense, right? I mean, horses go only so fast compared to trains and so on. So we need to uh, we need to keep that in mind that we balance we balance out the action factor because of course it's like any other audiovisual experience there needs to be a certain dramatic arc and history doesn't feel the need to cooperate with with that right so again it's a balancing act and what we're going to do for the napoleonic series is we'll look at we kind of plot out um the events since it is an event driven uh, thing although we we take time to then get thematic from time to time for that extra depth but we'll plot it out and say okay so this week's episode is going to have to actually cover two weeks at the beginning of the campaign you know where the russians are really withdrawing okay there's the battle at mir for example the first clash of cavalry but it's small scale you can't make 15 minutes out of that and keep people whereas like Baradino, for example, or La Moscova, if you want to be extra respectful to any of your French listeners. Um, okay, well, we're going to spend an entire extra long episode on that one day, that kind of thing. So that's also a bit of um, uh, a bit of a creative process that we that we have to go through. Now, thankfully, good old Napoleon and his contemporaries give us a lot to work with. I mean, these are sweeping dramatic fascinating events that completely have an impact on millions of contemporaries and then all of us who come sort of down the pipeline after the congress of vienna and all etc cetera, etc cetera. modernity all these kinds of things total war um you can draw you know you can make connections back to to this time different perspectives like for in, in sort of the German national narrative, this is part of their wars of liberation, as they call it, whereas most yeah. Anglo community people like you and I, wars of liberation, that's quite a secondary concept when we think of the Napoleonic mm -hmm. era. So, and the, not to speak of the Russians and their concept of 1812 in terms of the national narrative and birth of Russian nationalism and the European enemy invading and et cetera, et cetera. So, there's so many strands that we can play with and weave together and reflect from different layers 
So we can quote the Tsar, we can quote Napoleon. Okay, but who doesn't? But then we can quote a bunch of uh, junior officers. It's a bit tough to go below that, although there are some. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, so even for me, I mean, I'm not a specialist of this period. My focus was a century after that, but there's absolutely no, no shortage uh, of different things to play with. And I think if we try to wrap all that together, we hope we're going to have an appealing public history product. So you tap into so many things and regular listeners will know why when I heard about this project, I was really pleased because you've talked there about a number of things that we are going to discuss over the course of uh, this interview, because there are some really promising sounding things that you've talked about there. It's funny that you talk about the, the names of the conflicts. That was actually my first ever episode talking about exactly those kinds of things and how, how what do you call this period and why do we make it all about Napoleon? I won't repeat what I said, but you're absolutely right. And I think if memory serves in Russia, it used to be known as the Great Patriotic War until 1941 to 45 came along and then that became the Great Patriotic War. So, you know, as you say, there's different perspectives. You've got the same thing at Waterloo. For, for the Germans and my very kind of faithful German listeners, they call it, and I have conversations with them, the Battle of La Belle Alliance. They don't call it Waterloo. And it, it's, it's all of those things. I believe um, you had a rant related to that recently, but... Uh... Oh, I have many rants. <laughs> um, I, I'm very good at ranting. <laughs> so let's talk about a little bit of history now. So you're looking at the Russian and German campaigns. Shall we do, first of all, a quick synopsis of the campaigns, just for those who aren't familiar? Because straight away, what I liked is you didn't do that thing that I am hugely guilty of and hypocrisy in the extreme here. But I'm going to praise you for not doing the, hey, let's do a history of the Peninsula War and Waterloo because that sells well. Um, you deliberately went and did the Russian campaign. So give us a synopsis and then we'll talk about the whys of, of that campaign. Sure. I mean, I have to admit, you know, it is a factor in what we choose that the public familiarity familiarity is a factor i mean you know there's a reason why we chose 1812 rather than uh what can i pull out of my hat here i don't know the matabele war of 1884 right well that would be awesome this a niche in the market but can we make it viable? So, so it is a factor, maybe not as much as Waterloo. But anyway, um, for 1812, we thought it's a compelling story because Napoleon's kind of at the height of his powers after the Peace of Tilsit and after whipping the Austrians, Russians, and Prussians. Basically, everybody but except the British gets whipped. Well, okay, the Spanish, I should probably be kind there as well. Everybody who's big. And um, then there's this epic clash between them. I mean, Russia's an ally, not super willingly, but still. And then there's this massive epic clash. And there's this continental system led by a state that is so dominant, so essentially far ahead. I know that's a troublesome concept, but dominant of, of all the others that then embarks on this epic attempt at kind of bringing that domination to fruition and, and, and knocking out England's last possible kind of support on the, on the continent. And it turns into a catastrophic, dramatic, you know, tragedy, uh, essentially. Um, and I mean, I could essentially stop there, but like this, this is a big deal. And the other, one of the other aspects that we thought, you know, is quite significant is as the case with, I think, well, I'm speaking now here from, again, a kind of non-specialist point of view. For me, a lot of these Napoleonic campaigns, my anchor points are just the big battles. There's like Waterloo, there's Austerlitz, there's Jena, uh, and there's Baradino. Well, something else happened there. I mean, they didn't just teleport to Baradino, fight and then actually beat them, but then lose? Like, it, it makes no sense. So part of the journey for me has been finding out how compelling 
the rest of the story is. The maneuvering, the fact that the second Russian army almost got surrounded and destroyed in the summer, uh, the planning beforehand for things like logistics, which eventually then doesn't work out. Well, why? Um, how did the Russians decide on their strategy? That's not a straight line. They had all sorts of infighting. They hated their own German imported staff officers. You know, all that kind of stuff is wild and contribute in the end to what gets boiled down to this simple narrative of the French, which is actually all of Europe, basically almost march in and then freeze and then leave and freeze some more. And there's just so much more to that. Uh, to that story. And it, there's so much more meaning to it. There's so much more nuance to it. There's so many other moments where it could have turned out differently that get lost in all of that. And I think that's, that's part of the story that, uh, that we want to tell. So to summarize, I guess I did a bad job of that. Um, there's a lot more going on than just, you know, Napoleon is power hungry, so he declares war. He wins the battle, but then General Winter comes. Uh, there's all sorts of other of other things going on. And then for the 1813 campaign, this again is, I think, pretty much reduced to Leipzig, the you know the kind of biggest and most decisive battle. But there's a whole campaign in what is now Eastern Germany that leads up to that. Uh, the French whip the coalition at at Lützen. I mean, I'd never heard of that. Maybe that's just my own ignorance, but I feel like that's pretty compelling. I mean, mm -hmm. he's on the road to getting something done here. Now, interestingly, he couldn't follow up because he had no horses left after they all died in Russia. But uh, these are the kinds of things that make sense. And then once, um, you know, once Napoleon's forces are, are defeated, then you have... Um, you have the early 1814 campaign. We don't exactly, we haven't decided how we're going to handle that yet. If we're going to wrap it in with a later series about Waterloo, or if we're going to kind of tack it on as the continuation of the 1813 story in what's now Germany, we'll see. And then you have the, the meaning of the campaign, as I said, about the German wars of liberation. And this symbolism is already starting to be created at the time. You know, Prussia and Austria switch sides. But on the ground, there are German speakers fighting on both sides, and they are not necessarily natural patriots and nationalists because these ideas are still in the process of developing. And it's not like every peasant is, you know, cheering the black, gold, and yellow of the coming Germany that he's never even thought of or never even heard of. So I think... Um, that's a terrible chronological summary of those two campaigns, <laughs> but maybe that's a summary of why we think these campaigns are so uh, interesting. Like Leipzig is the focus point, but there's so much that builds up to that, including significant French victory. And, but as you know, is the culmination point in a way of the, or maybe the burning of Moscow in 1812, but there's so much that happens before and then again after that. It's not like Napoleon just decided, yeah, I'm going to have everybody freeze because uh, I'm marching back. He was trying to do other stuff. And then the Battle of Maloyaroslavets happens, for example, that changes his route and screws him over, basically, in many ways. So, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> but a lot of nice things came out of that, one of which was, of course, your passion. You know, and, and that speaks volumes to, to have somebody who is passionate presenting a show rather than somebody who's seen a check for five figures and gone, yep, yeah, I'll have that. Thank you very much. And there are plenty out there who are of that ilk. I won't name names, um, but, you know, folks can, you know, work that one out for themselves. Um, but on top of that, it's very interesting to listen to the way in which you approach this and the, the focus upon the human element, which I'm liking. Uh, the other thing to say here is, look, it sounds like you're trying to take, you know, a tome of a history book and then turn it into something on screen. And that's deeply impressive in itself. But then tied in within that is that, of course, what fills up huge numbers of pages within history books, primary accounts. And it's interesting to hear you say words like Borodino and, and Leipzig 
and the way in which you pronounce them because <laughs> you can hear that what we have here ladies and gentlemen is a very adept linguist the reason i know that is because people are forever smacking me over the head for my appalling pronunciation of words like Leipzig. Um, so let's kind of just dig into the material that you're using, because you as an individual have an impressive array of linguistic skills, and it was what, French, Russian, uh, German, are there English. any more? Yeah, and, 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 and Russian is, I, I have to say, I don't, like I have some degree of functional Russian, but I don't want to. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We have a partner in Moscow who's helping us, like, go through the literature and look at some primary sources from the archives. Uh, I, I do have my limits. I can function, and I can. I can try to not butcher the names too bad, and I can help us out with some short documents and captions for caricatures and, and archival photos. So three and a half, let's say. All right then. But even so, I mean, my English is barely functional. So to me, this is deeply <laughs> impressive. Um, but I want to talk about that material itself. How are you going about finding it? You're talking about going into archives, particularly Russian archives. And at the moment, that sounds incredibly exciting, given some of the geopolitical challenges that are attached with trying to get into to Russia at the moment, but also the translation and bringing material that a lot of people won't be so familiar with to the mainstream because you know it's been buried in an archive for a heck of a long time so talk us through that process was that a kind of a, a kind of a strategic thing hey let's approach this like we're writing a book but we're going to stick it on screen or was it just that you saw what other people were doing and went look there's an obvious niche here that needs to be exploited to its full extent it's interesting that question made me think of uh, of what I was thinking when I started working with real-time history and our initial discussions at the time just for the Great War YouTube channel kind of reboot post-armistice. And I didn't think it was that much about what are others doing. It is true. I noticed when I watched some stuff like, ah, but there's this element of depth that's missing, or there's a social element or this historiographical, you know, but there's a debate about that. I know there is, and why don't they kind of mention that, right? It was, we got together and said, hey, how do we want to do this type of thing? And that's what we came up with. Um, it was a bit natural. I think that the guys there and I ended up coming, you know, with our different backgrounds, me from history and them from the media side ended up, well, through serendipity partially i suppose having this similar concept of how to of how to thicken things up if you want to use the anthropological term for that in anthropology but um i i must say though we're not trying to reinvent the wheel completely like we're not going into uh, archives and you know photographing stuff there's a ton of good stuff that's already been done or digitized so the secondary literature there's no shortage on 1812 so we can stand on the proverbial shoulders of giants and you know we've got dozens of secondary works that they that then in turn cite primary works or sometimes even translate primary sources out of say italian or spanish languages that we don't have within the team but uh, there are other primary sources that are published or digitized that we will go to to make sure that we can cover certain bases that we want to cover. For example, Sophia, who's working with us in Moscow, she's able to look at the Russian literature, but also the Polish stuff, because she studied in Poland, knows the language. And guess what? Of the Grand Armées, what, 600,000 men or so, something like 85,000, I think, 80, 85,000 are Poles. So that's a, that is a big deal. And uh, we don't want to leave that, you know, by the wayside, it's it's uh, quite important. So we're going to use secondary literature in all of those uh, languages. One book in particular, I have to say, we're not turning this book into the series, but it's one of my go-tos is um, L'Effroyable Tragédie by Marie-Pierre Ré, who's a 
French historian, and her approach is quite a similar one to ours. She wants to make sure to cover these other aspects, social aspects, the point of view from the rankers as much as that's possible, but especially those junior officers who've, who've published uh, memoirs or who kept, you know, diaries and things. And she also used Russian archives extensively since she's a specialist on the Russian side of the conflict, uh, actually. And um, of course, we're gonna we're gonna consult others as well. Dominic Lieven is pretty good on the Russian side as well, and he publishes in English. I think a recent guest on your show, uh, Alexander Mikarib, oh, I'm not good with Georgian Mikaberidze, I think his name is. Uh, he's done some interesting stuff in Russian as well, previously, especially on Bagration. We are gonna consult some primary sources directly when we need something for a particular spot or we want to plug a particular gap. I mean, names that come to mind half off the top of my head. Albrecht Adam was a, a Bavarian artist and we're going to use some of his sketches and things that he drew, but he also then published afterwards his account and it's quite interesting. On the Russian side, sometimes it's a bit trickier because of course far fewer were, were literate, but one of the rare peasant accounts is by a peasant by the name of Nazarov. It's somewhere in Russia, and Sofia is hot on the trail of it. It's 40 pages long, his, his biography, autobiography, that he, he learned later to write. Um, one of the few that survived his 25 years of service. And so we really want to include him if we can get our hands on it. And then, of course, some uh, an interesting figure who published a great memoir is a female Russian officer, junior officer, Nyadezhda Durova. I mean, you don't stumble across a Napoleonic female officer every day, much less one that served for years and then wrote a memoir about it afterwards. It's been translated into English, but Sophia is going to consult the original Russian for us as well. Um, we want to try and include civilians as well. Of course, that will trend to ones that could write, like there's this socialite in St. Petersburg who made all these pithy observations about young officers being distracted and drunk and having orgies instead of, you know, preparing for the war and so on. So we want to we want to mix and match. We want to we, we can't consult every source. We can't reflect every argument of every school of thought for for everything but uh, we, we want to go as broad as possible, as is reasonable. There are a lot of things in there that just have me nodding approvingly, not least going back to the original, not relying on the translation, that will have gone down very well with Napoleonist listeners, I can tell you. Um, but also, hey, let's not forget the civilian perspective on this, which is something that folks will remember from Christine Hughes Patron's talk, is often done uh, in terms of that neglect, and when it's re rectified, it really is quite revealing. Um, so kudos to you, um, because this sounds like a genuinely great way of trying to tell this story. We're going to do our best. I mean, the Russian civilian story in this is very significant because obviously they suffer a lot of privations well, the ones that live along the march route of the of the European army. In any case, notice I'm not saying the French army, <laughs> trying, trying to stick to my principles here. The army of 20 nations, as I suppose it was nicknamed. And there's been some work done on that and their experience. But as far as I know, it's not that prominent in the English language literature. So Sophia is on it for us. And that's uh, that's all part of the plan. One other area that we're going to partner up, we hope, as we've been able to do in past projects, is the technical and weaponry sides. That's definitely not my specialty. I'm more of a sort of propaganda, cultural politics type of stuff. So there are some other YouTubers selected with care who really know what they're doing and we hope to partner up to them with them to kind of have an in-depth segment about muskets and musketry or perhaps not make any promises just these are these are things we're, we're trying to to work out perhaps something like uniforms or that sort of thing so hopefully it all works out 
fingers crossed. Um, let me stay with that theme though, because the technical side and the visuals, how, how are you going about visually presenting this? Because I'm always very conscious that I have the privilege of, you know, I, I can just turn the video feed off when I want to. And, you know, I don't have to worry about that side of things. But the flip side is that if you are going to turn the video feed on, it's got to be a game, you know, just taking two people talking does not generate huge engagement for people, apart from, you know, a very sort of select group who, who just want that interpersonal interaction. So talk me kind of through it. Are you going to draw on, on reconstruction footage? There, there are lots of sort of slightly snide cliches that get thrown at documentaries about sort of blurry um, things of, of action shots where the camera's just been swayed around a lot and you can't really see what's going on. And the joke being, oh, it's because they blew all the budget on, you know, person X or person Y as a presenter. Um, what about the landscape? You talked about maps and, and paintings. Talk me through how you go about keeping the visuals engaged because clearly you've got the content behind it kind of mapped yeah. out very clearly in your mind. Well, I would say, thank God I'm not responsible for that. We've got the Tony and Flo in the team who are the experts on the visual side of things. But if I can speak in their stead, we try to create a recipe that's going to be historically responsible, but visually engaging. And so there's no uh, docudrama. We don't have scenes with actors, you know, trying to re... First of all, that's very cost intensive. And second of all, second of all that's not our style. We, we want to firmly historicize ourselves. Let's put it that way for lack of a better word. We are going to have a mixture of animated maps that are custom made for this for this project, as we have done in some of our other projects. Now, a map is a tricky thing to work with because you express so much with a map and a lot of that you're not even intending to express, right? It's what you leave on, what you leave off, what colors there are, what contrasts of colors, you know, how you choose to indicate movements or how big a marker is that indicates a certain unit. But what if it's under strength? And, oh, and is it the same size as the unit on the other side, even though the combat strength is less or, you know, all those kinds of, so you have to do your best to balance that out. But we will have animated maps. We will have commissioned illustrations by artists who we kind of coach, right? We, we send them, for example, uh, historical sketches of soldiers, or we, we sometimes use the, uh, the famous Osprey series about different uniforms and so on. We trust, obviously that's not like an academic publication, but as far as uniforms and getting a sense, uh, we hope that it's, uh, it does the job. And then we'll say, okay, well, here's what's happening in this scene. And they send us a sketch and we say, looks good or actually we have to make sure that x y and z gets a bit adjusted and so on and so forth so we commission these illustrations they're done in i don't know how to describe the style actually it's not it's not you know sort of cartoon style it's far from that but it's also not a super hyper realistic you know pencil sketch style it's somewhere in between those two and we hope that that is engaging and colorful but still not, you know, making it into a caricature. And you see a lot of that, of course, especially on YouTube history, where it's kind of cartoon guys fighting the wars on screen. And, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to go that way. So illustrated maps, commissioned illustrations uh, from a couple of artists. We're also going to use as in, in as far as we can get the copyright for them, which is, a, oh my God, which is an absolute nightmare sketches done at the time by people or even sketches and illustrations done in in period and after publications uh, we're also going to try to use some paintings now paintings are a minefield as well because it's a representation it's not what actually happened and we will try to compensate for the weakness of that weakness in a sense by also including a little bit of analysis of the paintings and why they're made this way. And let's break down this one for two minutes, which we also did for the Franco-Prussian War series, I hope, uh, successfully. 
that is essentially the main mix, unless I'm forgetting. Uh, well, sometimes every once in a while you see my face. We try to keep that to <laughs> a minimum, of course. But uh, but yeah, we, we we try to keep that to a minimum. Um, oh, I should point out that for the maps, this is quite exciting to us. For the maps, we're working with Project 44, a Canadian duo who specialize. Actually, they started in in World War II digital maps but they have been plunged into the Napoleonic period to help us out. And we're advising them on, you know, what's important to put in. We've provided them with a roadmap of, a, of, of Europe in 1812, because of course the choice of roads and things is important to tell the story. What did Moscow look like then? And what parts of it burned? How can we reflect that on the map? So, so all that stuff is gonna, is gonna be in there. We also have, screens where the visual is the the citation the quote from whoever's diary or letter so we allow you to kind of fully immerse yourself in that extract of a primary source not only in terms of the audio because i'm reading it out but people can read it for themselves and um, usually with an appropriate image and that's how we try to that's how we that's how we try to illustrate a series that happened before photography. <laughs> I don't envy you. <laughs> what about on location filming? Are you going out to to battlefields? Do you kind of look at monuments that you think you want to visit and statues and so on, and kind of have a discussion about what you choose? And you know, shot choice is a big thing in itself. He says, as somebody who's sort of vaguely trying to dabble on a, another project with that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, we have a drone and we we put the drone to extensive use for our two World War II films uh, that we, we made independently, so not on YouTube, but available for streaming on our website, just in case anyone's into it. Um, the trick is, it ain't that easy to just book a flight to Smolensk at the moment, for example, Indeed, yes. or to Magilyov or to Moscow even. So, and not to mention budgets and, and all that sort of thing. So the, the chance we do have, of course, is that real-time history is based in Berlin. And so a lot of the fighting uh, in Germany for the 1813 series, we may be able to then, in terms of reasonable budget and stuff, make it there. Now, the trick is, of course, some of these battlefields like uh, Großbeeren, for example, it's not that far from, not that far from Berlin, but like it's a highway and a parking lot and a bus stop. So sometimes we think there would be, oh yeah, on location, it'd be awesome. Well, history's march didn't stop when the fighting happened there in 1813. So for the 1813 campaign, we yes, we do hope to have some, some on-site filming. For 1812, it's a lot trickier and I think it's safe to say it's probably unlikely. Yeah, no, I, I did wonder whether the geopolitical plus COVID plus budget constraints was all going to kind of come together to create quite the wall for you. I'm interested in, in your journey, and I don't mean that in a kind of cliche sense, but your journey as a presenter working on this series, you say that you kind of came to this not necessarily as a Napoleonic expert, but as somebody who has a grounding in particularly cultural and propaganda elements. And I gather, you know, a lot of your work has been uh, much much more kind of recent chronologically yeah. Um, yeah. so did you kind of have preconceived notions coming into this and have those changed as a result of what you've done do you kind of view people and the periods differently having worked with it in this level of detail oh that's a tough one I mean yes and no I mean my master's was in what the Germans call the history of new time. So modern history, which to them means from approximately 1500 to approximately 1919. So I did have, you know, some basic grounding in the period, not much about event-based. It was a very continental program of structures and long-term, you know, economic and social developments and that sort of thing. So I, I kind of had some of those ideas. What I think, uh, what I think I 
benefited from and, and learned in, in working on this is just how much more complex these campaigns were as military and political and social events. Again, because essentially event-wise, you know, my touchstones were just these big, these kind of big battles. All that maneuvering in the Russian campaign, all the preparations for it, um, that was something that I hadn't, I think, fully appreciated before. And something else, a concept that we did talk about a fair bit during my master's studies about this time period in general, is about time and the coexistence of different, essentially different historical times in one point in time. Uh, that sounds awfully abstract, but I'll give you an example of what I mean is what we're seeing here, what I'm reading about and discovering and then turning into scripts and writing about is profoundly modern. You have all these rational enlightenment concepts, nationalism, appeals to nationalism, even in Russia. And you have you know, a mass organized, administered uh, armies with uh, deadly technology made of metal and all this kind of you know, profoundly modern stuff idea-wise and technologically-wise. Um, but at the same time, a lot of society and culture and technology is, all, is like pre-modern or early modern. You still have French conscripts who don't know left from right because that concept is not important in their village kind of pre-modern life. So the drill instructor puts hay in one shoe and straw in another shoe and says, instead of left or right, hay or straw, and gets them to go that way. And of course, in Russia, that contrast is even more, that you have these pre-modern kind of cultures and practices existing at the same time as a modern kind of nation-forming war, in a sense, right? You have irregular, quote-unquote, tribal, like Bashkir, irregular cavalry, still armed with bows and arrows, for heaven's sake. Um, similar for Tatars and Kalmyks and, and so on. Fighting alongside people and technology and culture that's so modern that it's not that far from us. So that I think this, you know, very early industrial period slash very late pre-industrial period, that's one of the things that uh, made it so fascinating for me, like the French infantry manual from 1808, the first chapter is how to make soup. I okay. did not know that. I did not expect that. <laughs> Comment faire la soup? That, that's, I'm like, well, okay, these guys are still kind of in this not 100% modern mode, even though it's also modern. It was, it was a very cool journey, or it is still a cool journey that I'm on. I'm quite liking the fact that the first thing they teach them, or normally, you know, the first thing that they're trying to teach them is, here's how you eat, here's how you survive, you know, that's, that's quietly impressed me, not here, here's a gun and here's what you do with it, just here's how you stay alive to actually get to a battlefield to then do what follows. That's an interesting philosophy there. So I want to just chat very briefly about sort of the quirks of filming, if, if you will. Um, as I say, I have very, very limited experience, but I have found that you do get all kinds of curveballs and things that you don't anticipate and complications and just really weird, downright bizarre things that end up happening. Have you got any fun experiences of filming that you want to share with listeners? Well, some of the quirkiest ones uh, were no fun when they were happening. <laughs> That's for sure. I mean, as far as, as far as the Napoleonic series are concerned, we are just going to start filming of them. So uh, filming them right now. So I don't have a long uh, list of filming mishaps, let's, let's say, but, you know, we've already run into conundrums that we're trying to solve in advance of how to illustrate. And one of them was the roadmap that we had. We told the guys from Project 44, yeah, yeah, the roads are important. You know, we want to put the proper emphasis on logistics without boring people, but nonetheless, bring that in as an important aspect. I found online, Estonia has digitized everything. So they digitized, digitized an old Russian imperial roadmap of Central and Eastern Europe. And I thought, awesome, 
they got it in high res. We downloaded it. We sent it over and they were like, okay, we can't read any of it. And I said, okay, all right. Problem number one, I can help. But it's in pre-revolution, pre-1917 Russian writing. So they changed their alphabet a bit. I can still manage. But if we're going to put every road on it in, it's going to take them 100 man hours to do. So what roads do we want? Oh, man, okay, now I got to plan the whole thing out in my head in advance. So, you know, these kind of things snowball. What goes from, oh, we have a roadmap, let's get our map guys to copy it, becomes negotiations, discussions, and then the triage. When it comes to actual filming, um, one, of the, one of the worst things that can be is the weather. For our Rhineland 45 film on the Rhineland campaign in 1945, I learned how to memorize my lines because for outdoors, we don't really have a teleprompter and stuff like we do in studio so fast and so efficiently because I was freezing to absolute death. I mean, I'm not going to stand there in front of the camera in a giant Canadian parka with, you know, fur and everything. I'm standing there in a little European style winter pea coat, freezing my everything off, trying to get this out before it starts raining again at, you know, two degrees Celsius. Uh, so those were kind of, those were some fun moments or, um, yeah, we said to ourselves, oh, yeah, we'll do, a, we'll do a, a unit on the siege of Riga in 1812. Nobody talks about that, but like the Prussians were up there. Everybody likes the Prussians. They're cool. Well, none of our standard monographs on the campaign talked about it. It's like, okay, how are we going <laughs> to get our hands on this? We got Sophia on it. Then we had um, a student intern help us find in the 19th century, German history of the campaign, that's where we got uh, the important operational details, which then was written, was printed, not in the usual Latin alphabet, but in the older German fractal script, which 22-year-old Germans can't read very often. So we struggled together to then piece together what are the useful bits we can take from, from this older account that is in another friggin' alphabet, even though it's in German, a language we both speak fluently. So there's no shortage of those. There's no shortage of those. And uh, I mean, Flo has got horror stories about wrestling with copyright and how to determine which things we can use and which things are going to get us sued and all that kind of stuff. So in the end, it's always good times, but uh, sometimes the road is, is quite, uh, quite winding. Indeed. And it sounds like it has a, a hump or two uh, just to slow you down along the way. Um, wow. I want to talk about the future very briefly, if I may. Um, sure. So you've got the 1812-13 thing. You're going to go filming by the time this is out. You, know, you will be in that process. But you talked about, you know, sort of thinking beyond that, are you going to do the 1814 campaign as a coda to your 1812-13 series? Are you going to make it the, the prequel, if you will, to your Waterloo series? So what are your thoughts on the future about what you might choose to do and, and where you'll take it? Wow, I'm, I'm taken up quite a lot by my thoughts about the present at the moment, but I think, I think it kind of partially, you know, we get into that decision-making process that is not just based on the, the, the history. It's also based on the fact that we're an audiovisual medium. And so, there's that dramatic arc that I talked about in filmmaking that we need to make that work with the history. So does it make sense for us to say, well, there's 1812 and then that's kind of phase one, 1813 is phase two, but where does phase two really end, right? In a way, if we look at it more from the German point of view, it makes sense to end it kind of after, after Leipzig because that's kind of the more decisive one. That's the one that ensures that Germany will, all of today's Germany will essentially be then pretty much in the anti-Napoleon camp eventually, and it will enable it to one day be unified. I'm stretching things, but but uh, that's kind of the, the gist. A lot of the 1814 uh, fighting, of course, takes place on French soil, but it doesn't quite fit that easily in that, in that narrative arc, in that dramatic arc. So 
I'm not going to commit to anything here because we haven't made the decision ourselves internally, but I do sort of like the idea of a double punch of drama in, in one series. So we might do the fighting in France in 1814, Napoleon is defeated. And that's kind of a dramatic arc. You know, it's his last chance, his last gamble, but then the Russians, you know, march into Paris, but then he's back, right? And so it's kind of, oftentimes you have this structure where the tension builds and the, the events build up to kind of a climax. And then there's sort of a fairly quick uh, denouement is the French word, a fairly quick kind of like resolution and then ending. Well, in this case, maybe we go for two peaks, right? The tension builds up to his defeat and then, you know, exile. And then he comes back for the hundred days. And we'll see, maybe that's too much to kind of shoehorn into one thing. But the timeline, um, the timeline might let us, might let us do it. Let's see. So maybe we'll go for a double whammy. Well, it remains to be seen. Okay. So the important question within all of this, the reason that you've very kindly given up your time to record this this evening, how can people support the show? How do they get involved? Where, they, where can they find you? Go nuts. Make, make the sales pitch. Well, no, you made the sales <laughs> pitch already, frankly. If people aren't convinced by now, then I don't know what is needed to convince them. But how can they participate in this? Right. Well, I hope that they're sold on the idea. I hope that people are into the who are into the period who are going to be listening to your podcast might uh, be interested in another representation of it, another another way of engaging with the period. If your listeners don't know us, I think they can get an idea of what we do by going to the Real Time History YouTube channel, which is where we published our series on the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 Um and then they can get an idea of how we try to do our stuff and how we try to do history. The Napoleon will be slightly different, but that's, it's, a good, it's a good example of, of how we, we try to do things. And then if they would like to support us, and of course, we really appreciate that because that's kind of how we stay in the business and are able to do what we do, they can support us on Patreon. It's a website that allows people from the public to directly fund and support at a level that they can afford and they're comfortable with people like us who try to create uh, cultural and historical and educational content. So real-time history channel on YouTube, the 1812 series will be starting towards the end of February. And then the Patreon website for directly supporting us financially. And they can find us there under real-time history as well. And give people a sense of if you wish to, you know, not only the the tears, you know, I, I mean, you know, go nuts and, and talk to people about the perks and so on, because I use Patreon myself, I know how it works, I know how hard it is to generate that momentum, but also give people a sense of the costs your end, because this is not a cheap business. I mean, it's a hell of a lot easier for me as a podcaster. For you, and I was looking at, you know, trying to budget for uh, a single one hour documentary, and we were looking at something like two, three, maybe four thousand pounds. So for you in this project, what are the numbers? You know, give people a sense of what you're having to wrestle with and, and the value that they can bring by, by offering their support. Yeah, I mean, it's a significant undertaking. Our budgets go not just to those of us who are kind of full-time on the project, but we can't do everything. So we need people like Sophia in Moscow and she needs to rent an apartment in Moscow, etc. We need to buy the rights to use images. And as weird as that sounds for 200 year old sketches or paintings, the rights to them are usually owned by institutions or by commercial uh, image banks and so forth. So they cost anywhere from 10 euros to 25 euros for an image to use in a commercial enterprise like ours. And we're going to use many hundreds of them over the course of a series like this one. We've got to have guys who are doing the sound editing. Uh, of course, we've got to do the video editing. Of course, we've got to have people who animate the maps as well. Of course, we want to pay a reasonable amount of money to the artists who are going to be doing the commissioned illustrations. We don't pay people with exposure because we know that that's a racket and sometimes we're asked to do it as well. So if we have 
a historian like Sophia working with us or an illustrator like Elise, for example, we need to give them some kind of money, right? And uh, they need to, you know, be treated with dignity and respect in practical terms as well. So a whole project like this is many tens of thousands of euros. Thankfully, I'm not the one who needs to balance the budget myself, but it definitely runs into the, uh, to the six figures. For, for this kind of project because, for example, the 1812 series is going to be something like about 18 episodes. And then the 1813 series is also going to be somewhere in the range of 20 to 20-ish episodes, uh, let's say. That's about 15 minutes of material per episode plus bonus episodes that are exclusively available to our Patreon supporters. Um, I'm not trying to sing, you know, to play the world's smallest uh, history creator violin here, but there are realities, you know, there are budgetary realities. Uh, we need a studio to film in, we, we, you know, we need to pay the loans we took for the professional equipment that we have, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So I need to pay the bills for my therapist who helps me deal with uh, a throat injury that I incurred by having this job. So <laughs> it runs the, the expenses, of course, uh, are creative in, in, how, in how diverse they can get. As far as what our patrons get out of it, this is kind of what we get out of it, but we hope that they get uh, the finished product, which is partially exclusive to them. So any tier of Patreon of ours, we, we simplified it. We found that, we found that our, our Patreon supporters, they wanted good content we had more complicated tiers with different perks, all sorts of different ones. And we just found people like, hey, we want you to be able to make this stuff. So we simplified it. It goes from, I think, $4 a month to $20 a month to $50, all US, I guess, uh, a month. And everybody gets access to all our stuff that is not on YouTube. So that means bonus episodes where we go more in depth about certain topics for the Napoleonic series but then they also get access to our catalog. So they'll have access to the bonus episodes for the Franco-Prussian War. They'll have access to our two independent films on 1945 campaigns, all that kind of stuff. The top tier also gets publicly credited from us. So they, I forget if we call it like associate producer or executive producer or what, but um, they will be publicly acknowledged because Frankly, I feel like they're contributing to the to public engagement with history. And I think that's an important thing as a society. It's kind of a public good that they're contributing to. We're not perfect, but I still view it, you know, as a public good, an educational service for a lot of people around the world. And so we want to recognize them in that way. All the details of our simple three-tier Patreon scheme, uh, they can find on Patreon as well, if they if they go to our real-time history on Patreon. And on top of that, they will be in the link, they'll be linked in the, the post description. So folks, for every episode, there is a description. You've just got to find, it might be labeled as details or whatever it might be. Go and have a little search in there. It will be there as a link. Apologies if it doesn't go as an auto link, but that will depend on your podcasting producer, but you can just copy that text paste it into uh, your search browser and you will be able to follow it directly through. And the other thing that I would say, if folks were a little bit scared about the idea that, okay, the tiers are worked out in US dollars, you can pay in any currency. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you know, it, it will auto um, convert for you. So it doesn't matter where you are, you will be able to pay in your own currency and you won't be hit with a, a fee in the process. Jesse, it's been a fascinating conversation all the very very best with this i really hope that this comes off and and it, you know comes to fruition because it sounds like a great way of doing history and i really like your methods which is why i was particularly keen to, to have you on and to chat with you so real-time history folks you will find them on youtube um, and they are going to be doing a series on the russian and german campaigns coming very very soon do check out their patreon and do have a look at how you can support them Jesse, it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Remember to like and subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with anybody who might also be keen. A big shout out as ever to my patrons for their generosity. 
my Emperor level patrons Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Marshal level patrons Marcus Cribb and Todd Campbell, my Commander patrons Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham, Stephen Gillen and Michael Guest, and my Mentioned in Dispatches patrons starting with my Mentioned in Dispatches Plus patron Noah Fink, and my Mentioned in Dispatches patrons Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colleen Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Cochlan, and Stephen Coulson. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.